0: Hey everyone and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode, we are taking a slight detour from the main story as I am a little short on time this week and didn't have enough time to write a full-on script for an anime rewatch podcast. So instead, we're going to be diving into the 10th cover story titled CP9's Independent Report, which ended around this time in the manga anyway, so I figured it would be a good chance to talk about it. It ran from chapters 491 through 528 In a total of 33 installments that follows the events of what happened to the CP9 members after the events of Ennius Lobby. So yeah, this cover story basically follows the CP9 agents as we figure out what happened to them after their defeat to the Straw Hats and how they even escaped the Buster Call. As well as where they end up heading into the rest of the series. So, let's kind of recap the story this cover story was always interesting because it, it again follows another felled adversary of the Stronghats, much the same as Miss Golden Week's cover story where we saw the works agents and see what happens to them. And we can see the fruits of the labor of that cover story with what's happening in Impel Down with all or not all of them, but several of the major members returning like Gaudino, Crocodile, Dazbonus, and Boncre, all returning in Impel Downs. And they have a pretty big impact on this story later and this one was particularly interesting though because it left a bit of a mystery as to what happened to them because we never actually saw what became of the cp9 unlike the baroque works where we saw the baroque works defeated and a couple of them arrested however if you remember back in nes lobby they were all more or less incapacitated in the tower of justice With basically hellfire raining down on them from the Buster Call. And we all know the Buster Call will kill indiscriminately, whether it be friendly, foe, innocent civilians, or their actual target. And it wouldn't be ridiculous, you know, it wouldn't have been a ridiculous thought to have presumed them all being wiped out from this attack. Now, fortunately, they all survive, and this cover story details how and what becomes of them to a certain extent. Now, the first panel we see is the utter devastation that the buster call caused on Aeneas' lobby. And it is razed to the ground with nothing but rubble and collapsed structures everywhere. Like that first initial shot, it's literally just a flat land with a bunch of little rubble just all over the place. And so, yeah, how did they all survive this? Well, we see that Bluno went and rescued everyone and took them into his door-door fruit pocket dimension which is actually an awesome use of that power, and yeah, again, Oda, you're so good at using your powers creatively. I, I just, I'm always so impressed. Also, it would make sense that Bluno would be the first one to have regained consciousness, as he was knocked out the earliest by Luffy by a wide margin. I mean, he was basically knocked out even before the main conflict began. After they're all saved, Jabra and Bluno over here spend them, trying to pin what happened to them on them, and sends the marines after them, so they have to make a run for it by traversing the Puffing Toms train tracks to escape, which eventually leads them to the small town called St. Poplar, which could be a reference to a London train station located in the Docklands Light Rail, from what I understand. It's, it's very interesting that they were able to walk on these train tracks, because when you see these tracks, they seem pretty unstable, but then again, we did see in Frankie's flashback that he was able to run along it and stand in front of the Puffing Tom as well as T-Bone basically running to catch up to the other train uh, when he was knocked off the Puffing Tom. And so now on Say Poplar, here they want to find treatment for Lucci, but with no money, they kind of have to use their abilities basically, to perform like circus animals, and my favorite one has got to be Jabra jumping through the ring of fire while setting himself slightly on fire. It's a pretty funny image. The one with Kaku and Fukuro playing with the kids is also really cute, and, you know, I've always held the belief that, unlike Luchi, Kaku isn't necessarily, like, a bad guy. He just kind of follows orders of bad guys while believing he's fighting on the side of justice, and... And I know I've mentioned that before, but yeah, I mean, Kaku just looks like a nice dude, I feel like. And they do eventually raise enough money pre- performing all the little circus acts and doing odd jobs to help Luchi get the treatment he needs. And i always found how loyal and caring they are towards Luchi a little weird. It's not like Luchi instills the most loyalty, nor does he seem like the most likable guy ever. He just always struck me as like a psycho killer with with a very intimidating personality, even towards his own fellow agents. I mean, this guy just straight up murders other agents if they aren't up to his liking or they're incompetent. And, you know, we saw that with Nero on the f- Puffing Tom after he failed to capture Frankie, Sanji and Usopp or King. But it does seem like there is a certain level of code in One Piece, whether it be through pirates or even through these military organizations. Like... We saw it with Ging and Don Krieg, like how Ging stayed so loyal to Don Krieg despite the fact that he tried to kill him. Similarly with Crocodile and Daz Bonus, but I guess, you know, Daz Bonus saw him kill Mr. Three, but I guess he basically agreed with Mr. or uh, Crocodile and Mr. Three's death and whatever, or supposed death. But I guess I didn't really mind all those other ones because, yeah, I just bought those relationships a little more than Luchi and his subordinates, but that's just me and my opinion on on Luchi. But yeah, Luchi eventually regains consciousness and recovers while Hattori is over is seen overjoyed with, which is pretty cute, despite how also weird this bird is. Um, next we see Luchi thanking the doctors for helping them, and they're seen just kind of hanging around enjoying some bowling looking looking like maybe they're going to mellow out and live a life of laying low and enjoying themselves. And yeah, I I do think Lucci I, it was it was weird seeing Lucci kind of thank the doctors. I I guess there is a little bit of humanity in him despite the fact that he is sort of this murderous killing machine. <laughs> but yeah, it is it's a very interesting scene. Also, Khalifa seen using her ridiculous physical strength to make the pins literally explode is also funny. I don't understand how they play more than one frame if they're blowing up the lanes, but <laughs> good for them. However, the mellowed out CP9 wasn't meant to last as the town of St. Poplar is raided by a small-time pirate crew called the Candy Pirates, who are swiftly dealt with by the CP9, but because of Luchi and his brutal nature and his excessive justice, they are forced to leave town even though they just saved it, but because of the way they saved them, it kind of freaked them all out, and so they had to leave. One thing I want to point out here is Lucci is kind of given his own named philosophy of justice, kind of like the admirals. So in One Piece, there's this recurring theme of different characters or organizations having their own philosophy on how they approach justice and how they operate. So far, we've been introduced to the overall philosophy of absolute justice by the Marines as a whole, where they believe the core idea of the ends justify the means, even at the cost of innocence, as long as it eradicates evil. Similarly, we have the biggest proponent of this with his own variation of this, the Thorough Justice by Admiral Akainu. And this isn't actually named or revealed till a bit later in the story, but... Like we saw in in Ohara, he believes in not only absolute justice, but he wants to go a step beyond that and stamp out evil at its root. And not just the ones actually committing the acts of evil, but any potential for it as well down the future, which is why he goes so hard after Robin and tries to kill her. Then we have the other two admirals with Aokiji with his lazy justice and Kizaru with his unclear justice, both being kind of a, a middle and opposite of Akainu's philosophy. And so the three admirals are almost kind of on this spectrum of how how strictly they, they choose to enforce their justice with Akainu be, uh, being on the most absolute side of justice. And then you have Kizaru kind of being in the middle and then Aokiji being the furthest in terms of the, his sort of hands-off nature of his justice. Anywho, with that side tangent out of the way, back to the cover story, they decide to head back to their home and this is this is an island that's later revealed to be called Guanhao, where they were raised and trained to be assassins and agents of the CP or Cypher Pole, but not before they are presented with a sweet parting gift from a little girl in the form of a flower as thanks for saving her mom. And yeah, like I mentioned earlier with Kaku, you forget that despite the fact that they're presented as villains in the series, they're not necessarily evil. They're just doing what they think is right. And aren't technically trying to help society. It's just that they're doing it in the most brutal and ruthless ways possible. And basically sort of the underbelly of the world government. And I honestly think Luchi and Jabra actually have the capacity to be evil people. But the others, I I could see them being just normal people. Luchi pretty much is there in terms of evil. But he doesn't necessarily do anything outside of his mission. And doesn't go out of his ways to, you know to torture or kill people for random reasons or just because well i mean he can do it just because he likes it but for the most part he does have reasons for what he does i mean it could also be said that the carnivorous nature of the aboluchi and jabra's devil fruit powers is what makes them more aggressive and bloodthirsty as well as as was stated in the eneos lobby arc Now, when you see that one installment with the kids being trained to be CP agents, it's kind of sad in a way, like seeing these kids basically be trained to be killers later on. And we actually do get to see a few of the CP9 agents when they were training as kids in this same village in that special chapter 0. We actually got to see a 6-year-old Luchi, a 13-year-old Jabra, and an 8-year-old Bluno. But it is known that all of them... Including Fukuro, you know, Kumadori, Karifua, Kaku, everybody else. They all were trained there. Next, we see the Marines finally catch up to them, led by Captain Very Good. That's his actual name, Very Good. Uh, We saw him briefly in the final parts of the NES Lobby arc fighting with Frankie as the guy that has the berry berry nomi or the berry berry fruit, which we see him use here as well. And I'm pretty sure I forgot to mention this initially in that episode, but his name and the his fruit name are basically a kind of play on words in Japanese because in Japanese they don't really have a v sound so there's no v or v sound and so in Japanese v sounds are basically pronounced with a b sound so it's often like b and so when you say like the word very in Japanese it sounds like betty uh, which sounds a lot like berry because you say betty as in very and betty as in berry the fruit they're almost identical um it's kind of like with the whole r and l situation uh in japanese as well and so so you have that that sort of play on on the words with betty and betty Oda's naming convention for some of the mid to lower level marine offers are always hilarious with names like berry good brand new pudding pudding (laughs) like I Every time he uses one of those types of names for a Marine, it just kills me. Anyways, as Very Good and his troops encounter the CP9 engines, we get probably the coolest installment of the story with, with them staring down the entire gang in the shadow, silhouetted as their animal um silhouettes, almost like they're facing down a group of wild beasts. And of course, the Marines stand no chance against the CP9, and Very Good is seen kind of broken apart into his little berry pieces, as the CP9 kind of sail away. Spandem in the hospital, while recovering from his injuries sustained from Robin breaking his back, as well as slapping the ever-living shit out of his face, gets a call via the Dendemushi from Luchi, saying that he will return. Now, with that threat, Spandem and his father Spandine, who I actually was surprised was still alive. I don't know why I thought he was dead, but, but yeah, they, they plot to take out the CP9, And we end on a shot of the CP9 having planted the flower and Guanhao Island among the pieces of very good kind of strewn about the cliffside. Yeah, so overall, I guess my thoughts about this cover story is that while it was fun to see what happened to the CP9 agents because I was genuinely curious what became of them, this story is pretty simple and kind of boring. Like, I did enjoy seeing some of the CP9 agents just behave like normal people instead of the evil killing machines that we've kind of seen them to be. It also sets up a very intriguing side plot of Spandem hunting down the CP9 agents and Luchi kind of working to get stronger and come after Spandem. And I'll go more or over this a little bit more in the spoiler section because like with almost all the cover stories, this one will also come back around to play a larger role in the main story. But yeah, in closing, there you have it. A complete recap and review of the 10th cover story following the CP9. A very simple and innocuous story that has some implications for the main story. But yeah, on the next episode, we'll get back to the main story and we will finally go into the meat of the last act of Impel Down. But yeah, thanks for letting me take this slight detour this week. It was a very busy one. So yeah, I'm hoping to get a full episode made next week. But if you did enjoy this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter account, or I guess X account. I don't know why I keep saying Twitter. At Podcast, if you want updates of when I post new episodes or see pictures of my manga collection. And as always, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast. And yeah, a small spoiler section after this, but if you're not interested in that, stay safe out there. And I hope to see you on the next episode. Bye! Alrighty, so this will pretty much be spoilers up until the most current chapter of where I am at the time of recording, which is chapter 1094. And yeah, obviously, Lucci does return to the main story post-time skip in somewhat of a minor role to begin with, but is now currently in the main story. And he's back as somewhat of a prominent but secondary antagonist to the Straw Hats in the Egghead Island arc. And I won't get too much into his story post-time skip right now. But when he returns, we'll have plenty of opportunities to to talk about all of him uh, as we go through those episodes. But what I do want to talk about is how the story thread that's set up in this cover story is kind of dropped by the time Luchi, the CP9, and Spandam all return to the main story. So, sometime during the time skip, off screen, yeah. Lucci and the others are reinstated back into Cypher but this time as CP ages 0 agents, so CP 0s. And now Lucci is spandam superior in terms of rank, but nothing is ever really resolved with their relationship. And this whole thread of them going after each other is more or less just dropped. And I feel like this is one of those times where Oda sets something up and decides that it's not worth it or is not interesting enough to pay it off. And I'm not overly disappointed or upset that this story thread was never paid off as as I said in the non-spoiler section, this story was never all that intriguing. But it just—it was just kind of strange that it was, it was more or less never really addressed and just kind of glossed over despite how decent of a role Lucci in particular still has in the main story. I mean, he shows up in almost every movie since the post-time skip. And he's also kind of showing up in, in multiple different arcs. I mean, all the way going to... I think he's mentioned in Dressrosa and I need to or Well no, he's definitely in Dressrosa. I'm trying to remember if, if he was somewhat involved during the Punk Hazard arc as well. He was never on Punk Hazard, but I feel like and I'll have to go back and do a little bit more rereading or re research for this, but yeah, I'm pretty sure he was mentioned in Punk Hazard. But of course, he shows up in Dressrosa and Whole Cake Island. Uh, as well as a tiny bit in Wano and now a very major role in the Egghead Island arc. So he kind of just like appears every now and then. Uh Oh, and of course he's in Leverly during during the, oh, that whole little mini arc as well. You know, kind of chauffeuring the uh, Celestial Dragons and everything. But yeah, it's just very strange that this whole dynamic between Spandam and Luchi just kind of <laughs> just disappears <laughs> more or less. But uh, anyways, that's pretty much all I wanted to talk about. And yeah, we'll definitely get into more about Luchi as he re- reappears in the main story. But anyways, thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode. See ya!